So like I said, we're going to go ahead and get started in the book of Romans. Because, and I've entitled today's message of this section, it's about the first half of the first chapter. It's called, I Am Not Ashamed. Because one of the things that Paul iterates on in this section as he talks about ministering the gospel is that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And we'll actually spend a few minutes on that because I think too many of us are ashamed of the gospel. And we don't want to admit it. We won't say it out loud. You sure as heck won't say it in the church. But if you think about how you live your life at work, you realize that maybe you are a little bit ashamed of the gospel. And that's one of the things that Paul's going to deal with today. But as we get started, one of the things I love about the book of Romans is like, it's almost like a mini Bible. The book of Romans is the gospel summarized. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And it looks, about, it looks at the, it's an incredible look at salvation, but it also looks at the reality that salvation is by faith apart from works. And if you, if you, if you could only read one book in the Bible, I think this, this wouldn't be a bad choice because this is, it nails the reality of the gospel. It nails the fact that, that we are made clean by God and not of our own. We, do, we deal with works. We deal with the fact that it's available for everybody. It's not just available to a select few. Paul deals with the gift of salvation, the folly of unbelief. He demonstrates that salvation was for the Gentiles as well because that was revolutionary at the time, right? Because God essentially belonged to the Jews, but God said, no, actually, I have a different plan. It's for everybody. Salvation is for everybody. And... Uh, it also shows us that we are empowered to live righteously through the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. You know, and we, we talked about that a little bit last week when we talked about you do what you are, right? Because we are made clean, we are made brand new, and as a result, that should live out of us. Because we're empowered to live a godly life through what Christ has accomplished inside of us. This is what Augustine, one of the early church fathers, uh, said about the book of Romans, and he was actually converted while reading it. It says, Augustine's conversion occurred in the summer of 386. Are you guys alive around then? You guys remember what happened? Joseph, where's Joseph? I'm sure he was. <laughs> Praise God. You tell me if this is a true story. Augustine's conversion occurred in the summer of 386, and it says, in his confessions, he described his cheerful prayer in a Milan garden setting, beseeching God to purify his unclean thoughts and habits and I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house chanting over and over, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. And Augustine ran to the bench where he'd left the book of Romans and I snatched it up, opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eye first fell. Not in writing and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And August explains that when he had read this passage, there was an infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Martin Luther described this book as the chief part of the New Testament in the very purest gospel. John Wesley wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And in an assurance it was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And this was after he read the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. As we can see, the, the book of Romans is an incredibly powerful book. It's an incredible, powerful testimony of the gospel, and it's been transforming lives for hundreds of years. It's about God's word. Is it's not just for 
hundreds of years ago, but it is, is for today as well. And if we read through the book of Romans, we're going to see really an outline in such a way that we can understand it, that we can apply it to our lives, and it can have the power to change your life. And I'm excited to get started in it today. You guys ready? Let's go. <clears throat> Verse, uh, Romans uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I forgot to take all the spaces out. There's Normally it would be on one slide. Sorry about that. Praise God. So, as we get started, we have to understand a few things. How many of you guys know that Paul was a Roman citizen? He was actually a Roman citizen. He was born as a Roman citizen. You guys remember this? the story in the, in the book of Acts when, when he was being uh, uh, beaten, and he said, who are you to, to beat a Roman citizen without a trial, basically? Without, uh, and uh, they freaked out because he didn't buy his citizenship. He was actually born there. So Paul's a, a Roman citizen. This is his hometown, if you will. But at this point, he had not been to Rome to preach the gospel. He had not had any of his missionary journeys head to Rome yet, which is interesting because when he got saved, he went out and began to places that hadn't heard the gospel and, and kind of left his hometown. Because his ministry, his goal was to preach the gospels to places that had never heard the gospel. He didn't want to, and he'll talk about this later in, 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 the, in the chapters as we get further down the road, but he didn't want to build on another man's ministry. He was actually going out there to reach people who had never heard the gospel before, people that had never had that hope. But he was finally hoping to make it to them. He was finally hoping to make it to the Roman church because the truth is he still had a heart for them. So he sends him this letter saying, listen, guys, I want to tell you some things. I want to be a blessing to you. And I, I just want you to know that I've been trying to make it there, but I've been hindered thus far. But the first thing that he does is he begins to essentially give his credentials. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul's never been to Rome. The Romans didn't really know him, so he begins to lay out his credentials. This is the reason why I want to come to you and minister to you. And the first thing is, is he said he's a servant. And actually, in other translations, it uh, uses the word uh, bondservant, which I think is probably a better translation because basically what that word here means is he was a slave. He was, he was a slave to Christ. And the Romans would have understood what a slave was. They, they got this reference, reference much better than we would get it today, right? Because, you know, the, the, the idea of serving people in today's society is actually an awful thought. Nobody wants to be a servant, and definitely nobody wants to be a slave. But Paul was saying that I am a slave to God. I'm a slave to Christ. There's a story of a, a man many years ago, who paid a very particularly high price for a slave. And when the, the, the slave had been purchased, he came into his possession, and then the, the man who had bought the slave said to the guy, the only reason that I bought you was not to be your master, but I wanted to give you freedom. So I paid the exceptionally high price to give you your freedom. 
And when he did that, he, he, the, the slave said, is, is it true? Is it true? Am I really free? And he says, yes, you're free. I didn't buy you to keep you. Here's your paperwork that says you are completely free. And he says, am I truly free? Am I on my own? May I go where I wish? And the Christian said, yes. You can go wherever you want. That's why I bought you, so you could be loosed and free from these chains forever. And overwhelmed by these words, the slave fell at his feet and said with a heartfelt devotion, then my greatest joy and freedom will be to stay with you and serve you gladly for the rest of my life. You know, that's the reality. That's why we call Jesus our Lord and Savior. Because he released us from bondage that we could never be freed from ourselves. He released us from chains that were holding us back in bondage to sin and death. And as a result, the natural result should be to fall at his feet and say, in my freedom, I will serve you the rest of my days. That's what Paul was saying, that he's a, he's a servant, a bondservant, because actually the idea of a bondservant in those days is if somebody was released from, from being a slave, if they really loved their masters, they were treated well, they would become a bondservant. And what they would signify that was by essentially nailing their earlobe to the, to the front door to say that, no, I want to stay here. Now it's of my own volition. I'm not forced to stay here. And Paul was saying that that's who I am. I'm a, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of my own volition but i'm a slave nonetheless to the gospel to christ and then he says i was called to be an apostle which just means that he was he was one who was set apart and sent with delegated authority as you guys know about paul he had the damascus road experience and that's when christ touched his life and that's where he was he was called to be an apostle for jesus he was set apart for ministering the gospel of god and the gospel of God is, is simply this. It's good news. The gospel means good news. That means that when you see those people that are preaching fire and brimstone and telling everybody they're going to hell for all the sins they've ever committed, one, that's just wrong. They're not going to hell because of their sins. They're going to hell because they didn't receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because God sent His Son when we were all sinners to pay the price. Well, sin has been dealt with sin has been paid for the only thing you have to do is receive that free gift but also how many of you were encouraged when somebody spoke to you like that when they told you how awful and terrible you were and and the reality is 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 those things may very well be true when we're in bondage to those things but it's not good news and it's never going to touch somebody's heart it's never going to to make an impact like it would be if you would share the love of Christ, share the good news of the gospel. It's true. If they don't receive Jesus, they're going to hell. But the good news is, is they don't have to. The good news is, is a free gift will take them to sit by God's side with Jesus. He then goes on to say that this has been a long time coming. The gospel, he says, this gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scripture. You know what? The prophets have been speaking of Jesus for a very, very long time. This wasn't like a surprise, even though many resisted and they acted like it was something new. If they studied the Scriptures, the Scriptures have been talking about Jesus since the very beginning. He was there in the beginning, and He said He was coming. This Gospel has been a long time coming. And then He says that concerning His Son, who was descended from David, according to, to the flesh. 
Even now, we begin, just in his introduction, we begin to see that, that Jesus was fully man. You see, that's the important thing about Jesus, is Jesus was 100% man, which was necessary so he could relate to us, so he could go through the same things that we went through. But he was also 100% God, which we'll see here very shortly. But he says that he was descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus was 100% man, just like you or I. He lived and dealt with the same uh, temptation. Matter of fact, the scripture says he dealt with every temptation, which is common to man, which means that he dealt with stuff that you and I don't deal with. There's some stuff. We're not all tempted in the same way. Satan doesn't use the same bait for all of us, but Jesus dealt with every temptation, the scripture says. He was declared to be the Son of God in power and according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Now he says, see, that Jesus was also fully God. He says right here, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness in his resurrection. Jesus, like I said, was not only fully man, but he was also fully God in the flesh. The scripture says that he set aside his deity to be a part of us, to do what he had to be accomplished here, but he was still fully God. And the scripture says that his resurrection, he said he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. His resurrection proved that he was who he said he was, right? Because Jesus, on multiple occasions, said that he would rise from the dead. In John 2, 18 through, through 19, it says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy the temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. His resurrection was foretold even by Jesus himself, and it proved who he said he was. The reality is, is that all of us are going to die, and anybody can die. Jesus dying was not a miraculous event in and of itself, but he did rise again. And that proved that he was who he said he was. That was the Holy Spirit's mark of approval on who he was. And according to the Holy Spirit working, we find that God was always working in the three persons of the Godhead because they're all a part of the gospel. God created the plan of salvation and sent his son. And Jesus lived out the plan of salvation. He's the one that paid the price. And the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we need a savior. And he's what seals it on our hearts when we receive Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us. He says, through, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Once again, he declares his credentials that he has an apostle. I bring about the obedience of faith for, his, for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And finally, he was also calling all the Christians in Rome as equals. The reality is, is that Christianity is not reserved for a few select few. Christianity has been made available to every single person, and the Scripture says that God does not want any to perish. He was wanting to ministry to you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. I want you to know that that includes the entire world. We're all called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's just so many people who refuse to answer the call. It's one of the reasons why we can't be ashamed of the gospel, because we need to be able to minister and share that at every opportunity. Because one, if you were like me, I resisted for a long time and finally somebody got through 
So even when it feels like people are rejecting you or resisting you, if you have the opportunity to share, even if it seems like nothing will come of it, because you never know the impact you're going to have on somebody's lives. In verse 7, he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about this last week, about who we are in Christ. As Christians, we have been given a brand new identity. And we talked about last week how important that was to understand because out of who we are is how we live our lives. As Christians, he says that we are called to be saints. Brand new identity. We're no longer sinners. We're saints. And you guys remember last week, and we'll see if anybody was paying attention, how many people in this room are saints? If you are saved, praise God, some people were listening. If you are saved, normally I ask that question and nobody raised their hands. And I'm like, haven't you been coming to this church for a while? But yeah, if you are saved, you've been given a brand new identity. You are a saint. There's no formal process you have to go through to be a saint. You don't have to do miracles before and after your death. There's, the, the fact is, is that if you're a Christian, you're called to be a saint. This is your new identity. We're no longer who we were. We have been made brand new. We are saints. And when Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome, he refers to them as loved by God and, God and called to be saints. There are over 60 occurrences of the word saint in the New Testament. 60 times that word is used, and not once is it referred to refer to somebody, uh, does it used to refer to like a super Christian or anybody. It's just referred to the people of God, his children. And before you were saved, you were a sinner. And you weren't a sinner because you sinned. You sinned because you were a sinner. And I hope you see the, the difference there. It's the cart before the horse. Because we do what we are. And now you are a saint. And you live, you're not a saint because you live perfectly or because you live holy. But you should live holy because you're a saint. 2 Corinthians 5.17 is one of my favorite verses. Not my favorite verse. You guys should know that one by now. But my favorite, uh, this is one of them. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have gone. Behold, new things have come. You're brand new. Your identity has been changed. And then finally, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is something that is given that we don't deserve. And the reality is, is we didn't deserve God's love. We didn't deserve his grace, but he gave it anyway. That's what makes it grace is because we didn't deserve it and the reality is is without jesus we do deserve death the scripture says we'll we'll read here in a few chapters that the wages of sin is death god is a holy god he's a right god he's a just god and he can't be combined with something that is not but in jesus we have received grace 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 immeasurable and as a result we can finally have true peace you know, there's peace in knowing that no matter what happens on this earth, you're going to be with the King of kings and the Lord of lords forever. There is peace in knowing that you have been made brand new. There is peace in knowing that there is a God who loved you so much that he gave up everything for you. This is that peace that surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make any sense. But it's been extended towards each and every one of us. In verses 8 through 10, it says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing 
I mention you always in my prayers, asking what somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. I love how Paul, in every single one of his letters, always makes it a point to mention how he is praying for the saints. This wasn't just something Paul did on occasion. This was a part of who Paul was, praying for the children of God, praying for those he ministered to. And and also we find out these are people that he had not ministered to yet. Paul had never met these people. He just knew that they were Christians, that they loved God. They were actually living in in one of the Western world's political centers of power. And as a result, the, the Roman Christians were kind of visible. People knew what was going on in Rome because news flew out of that city. Not quite as fast as it does on social media, but it was the social media speed of the time. And it appears that they made excellent examples. He says here in verse 8, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They were, they were excellent examples of what Christians were supposed to look like. These Christians had a thriving church in Rome and they were living pure and faithful lives in what was an evil city. They were making an impact. People were seeing what was going on. It was being proclaimed. That's what they were being, those cities on a hill, that light on a lampstand. When people saw them, they saw the love of God. And Paul gave thanks to God that they were living that kind of life. And the reality is, is Paul's giving an excellent example for all of us to follow. Even though we're not involved in ministering to the people and all the people in this city and all the churches in this city, are we praying and lifting up other life-giving cities in this church? Is that part of your regular prayer life to lift up the kingdom of God in the city of Marana? Just in case you didn't know, we're not the only church here. We're not the only people that God loves and we're not the only church that God is working and moving through. And we need to lift up the rest of the churches in this city that they would be effective, that they would have an impact on this city? Are we thanking God for the work that is being done outside these four walls? Because the reality is, is God will work through and build up His church, and that includes more than just us. And then he's also saying he was praying for another visit to Rome. I love how he says, I, I, I pray without ceasing. Every time he prayed, he was praying for the people of God, the children of God. And he says, always in my prayers, I'm asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Paul wanted to be a part of what was going on in Rome as well. And I love Paul's heart and passion for people. That's one of the things that most greatly uh, that I want to emulate when I read about Paul is his love for people. He cared about the people that he ministered to. He cared about people he had never met before. He had a heart for them, and he loved them. And that always amazes me because how many know it's super easy to care about the people you know? It's super easy to pray for your family. I bet most of us rarely forget to pray for our family. But I bet more often we forget to pray for the people at church. And I bet even less seldom do you find yourself praying for other churches in this community or even less seldom praying for the nations. But there's more to Christianity than us. There's more to what God is doing than what's happening here. Begin to pray for others. Have the same heart that 
Paul did. See people the same way God sees people. If you realized how valuable people were to God, you wouldn't stop praying for them. And the reality is, is that if you have the heart and mind of God, that you should see the same way. I'm always asking to see people how God sees them because I want to have that same attitude towards them. I want to see people as valuable as they really are. Even when from the outside, they look unvaluable, they look unlovely. I'm constantly reminding myself that no, God sees them differently. And after he says, I, he says I've been praying that I, I may now at least succeed in coming to you in verse 11 through 12, he says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The reality is, is Paul wanted to be a part of what was going on in Rome. That was some good stuff. God was moving, and Paul wanted to be a part of that. But it wasn't so that he could come in and steal the show. Paul wasn't trying to swoop in and say, look at me, look at me. He wanted to be a part of what God was doing there. And he intended to serve them and not be served. He says, I want to be mutually encouraged. I want to impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul's focus was the Roman church and not himself and how he could look good, but instead in how to make an impact on them. But he also wasn't naive. He realized that there would be mutual encouragement. You know, that's one of the, the greatest things about being in ministry is that as I encourage others and impart unto others, I'm always so blessed by everybody else as well. One of the easiest ways to not be blessed is just to shrink in and, and never be involved with anybody else. But if you want to be blessed, be a blessing to others. And the truth is, is that when we come together under Christ's banner, there is blessing and, and provision for everybody that comes into that. But I also know firsthand, I definitely understand the difficulty of working in another man's field. You know, and that's, that's the hard part because especially now is uh, uh, when I was training up in, in, in the Tucson church as we were uh, under Pastor Mike as I was being trained, being ready to be sent out. You know, I worked in Pastor Mike's field and I faithfully served there and did what he needed me to do and we built up the people there. But when it was time to be sent out, it was just us. You know, I worked in another man's field and then it was time to go into my own but even more so are the, the thoughts that I have to deal with when I think about partnering up with other churches. You know, one of the downsides to being the small church is that you begin to think, well, if we work together with the Springs Church like we just did for the, the, the Halloween, uh, the, the trunk retreat, we got together and we were a great blessing to the community. But one of the easiest things to, to begin to think about is if we're going there, if I'm working with it, why would anybody want to come to our church? We're so much smaller. We don't have all the resources to offer. We don't have all the people. You know, and those are the things that begins to, to run through my head if I'm being honest and I have to quickly take every thought captive that the Scripture says and remind myself, and it's actually something God always challenges me on. He says, whose church are you trying to build up? Yours or mine? So we, we, we co-labor with them. We try to make a difference. And the truth is, from those events, we've not seen a lot of growth in our church. At least not uh, people coming in per se. But we do have growth 
and each and every one of us when we go to be a blessing to other people. I know that you guys have been a part of it, have been blessed by it. You're actually growing and working in the kingdom of heaven. And the truth is, is that, that God is going to bless us regardless. And we don't do those things to boost our egos or to fill our, our seats. We do this because we want to make an impact for the kingdom of God in this city. And the truth is, I would rather every person I ever met get saved and go to their church and not come here rather than not get saved. Because we're trying to grow His kingdom and we care about the people. This isn't, church is not a business. It's about relationships and changing people's lives. We're in it to make an impact in this city and for the kingdom of heaven. And when we work together, just like Paul wanted to come together and work with these people, we are mutually strengthened, we are mutually encouraged, and we see a city that is, that is feeling the love of Jesus. In Romans 1, 13 through 15, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Like I said, Paul had been intending to minister in Rome, but he had been prevented thus far. And our first thought when we read this is we begin to think, oh, it must be the devil hindering. It must be the devil making, making sure. That, anybody else thought that when they read this, that it was the devil hindering him? Guess what? It wasn't. You know who was hindering from getting here? You're not going to believe this. It was actually God. <laughs> if you actually read a little bit later in Romans 15, um, uh, 15 through 22, we'll, we'll talk, cover some of this. We find out that he, he was intending to go to Rome, but God had other plans for his life. God said, no, I want you to go out to the Gentiles who have never heard the gospel, who had never heard Jesus' name preached. I need you there. We see the reason that he was hindered is because he was ministering to those who had not heard the gospel at all yet. And he was doing the Lord's work was the reason why he couldn't make it to the Roman church. The reality is, is that we need to be obedient to the call of God's life, call of God on our life. And sometimes it's not going to be the way that we imagined it would be. Sometimes doors are going to be shut because the, the enemy is attacking and trying to, to, uh, to cause the things of God not to happen. And we saw that uh, Paul... Uh, in his, his letter, I think it's in Thessalonians, was talking about how he wanted to come there, but he was hindered by Satan. The truth is the devil will work against you. But sometimes God just has other plans for your life. I know that's definitely been the case for my life. I don't have time to really go into that, but some of you guys know the story. But the truth is, is that I never wanted to be a pastor. But God had other plans for me. And even though the church had been established without any of Paul's effort, he still wanted to go there and make an impact. It says, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now the economist in us and the, and the people that are cynical in us, we start thinking, oh, Paul just wanted to, to make a little bit of money. He wanted to reap or harvest, but he wasn't talking about that. He was talking about souls. He wanted to make sure that people's lives were changed. He wanted to reap harvest among those in the city of Rome and the other Gentiles there, that they would be saved and come to know the Lord. 
And he says, because I am under obligation, both the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says that he was under obligation. I'm always intrigued by when these kind of use, these words are used because it doesn't, it sometimes seems like it, it bodes correctly with a, with a God who's always loving and wants the best for you. Like he's under obligation. He says in, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in chapter 9, he says, for necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And I always, I don't know if you guys get pictures in your head or start you know, thinking outside of what the words say sometimes or you begin to try to reconcile it. And I'm, in my head, I'm thinking like, man, God's standing behind him with a big stick and if he doesn't preach the gospel, you know, he's just going to get a good smack. And uh, that's the way I've always read that is like there was something different about Paul that, that he had to preach the gospel. He didn't have a choice. You know, otherwise, like, God's like, yeah, don't preach the gospel. See if I don't put those scales back on your eyes or something like that. You know? it, uh, but the reality is it has nothing to do with that. I didn't finally fully understand that until I was called into the ministry, what that means, this obligation, this woe that you feel. And it's not God waiting to punish you, but it's uh, a sense of emptiness, if you will. It's very difficult to, to describe properly. But I know that that if I were to just walk away, there would be a piece of me that would be ripped away. There would be a hole in my heart that could never be filled because this is what God has called me to do. So being under obligation had nothing to do with, with God standing over him, but everything to do with, with the call of God on his heart and wanting to be a servant, a bondservant, a slave, like he said to Jesus. How could he do anything else but serve him? How could he do anything else but to preach the gospel? This was the mission that he had been given, and he would feel empty and hopeless if he wasn't doing what God had called him to do. He says, I'm under obligation to preach to you, to minister to you. Both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Basically, Peter had primarily been sent to minister to the Jews, but Paul had been sent to minister to the Greeks. And basically, if I understand correctly, barbarians is just shorthand to everybody that wasn't Jew or Greek, everybody that was kind of wild, a little bit crazy. They weren't in the civilized world, if you will. But Paul said, I'm, I'm, I'm called to minister to all of them, and that includes you, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. And then in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. See, the message of the good news of the gospel is that sinners can be made right with God. That, uh, that is amazing and wonderful news. Because the reality is, is most people, even if they're not saved, they recognize that there's a shortcoming. They recognize that there's something missing. And people have invented and got involved in all kinds of religions trying to fulfill that hole, to fill that void. And if they don't get involved in religion, they get involved in something else, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole bit, trying to fulfill and fill a hole where they're missing something. But that, that rightness, that missing thing is God. And, and the, the message of the gospel and the good news of the gospel is that sinners can be made right with God. It tells the story of how a righteous God can actually justify sinful people. 
And righteousness is actually a primary concern in this letter to the Romans. We're going to see that, that righteousness in, in, uh, in some form is mentioned over 60 times. You know, righteous, just, justified. Over 60 times in this book. And we see that we're also going to see that righteousness is re- revealed. Man, somehow I missed the whole thing of notes. And we see that's the, the, the whole point of the gospel is your righteousness is revealed in faith. And the thing is about being ashamed of the gospel is unfortunately we live in a time right now that I think that many of us are ashamed of the gospel. Like I said earlier, even if we won't admit it. I was reading a story about a, a man who was a missionary to a restricted access company. And matter of fact, in this company, uh, this country, did I say company? Restricted access country. And in this country, it was actually illegal to speak of God. There were the, the, they, the government actually taught people that there was no God. And this gentleman, he had an opportunity to be a missionary in this country, to access this country. And he had befriended one of the, the dignitaries, the highly educated people there. And after some time and after some relationship, he had the opportunity to share the gospel with this man. And he said, my friend was taken aback by the man's response to the gospel. He says, what you have told me cannot be true. If it were true, it is such good news that someone would have told me this before today. You see, the gospel is such an amazing uh, uh, release to people who have no hope. It's such great news. But the funny thing is, 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 and actually it's not funny, it's kind of sad that we don't talk to people about the gospel because we're afraid of what they might think about us. Or we're afraid that we might offend somebody. We're told not to push our religion on people. Anybody ever been told that? Don't be pushy. The problem is, the thing is, is, is many of us probably feel that way. But no, we, we, we'll do what we want to do. We'll, we'll believe what, 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 what we'll believe, and they can believe whatever they want to believe. But you don't find that anywhere in the gospel. The gospel actually says that we're to go out and make disciples to share the gospel. And the thing is, is that if we really believe, what we say we do, then believing anything else is a lie. Because there's truth in the gospel, and Jesus is the only way to salvation. And it's not a bad thing or anything to be ashamed of. And the reality is, is that when we take on that attitude, let them believe what they want, we'll believe what we want, we're, we're essentially condemning somebody to hell because we didn't share the truth. Now, if you don't really believe the gospel, I understand how that's acceptable. But if you believe the gospel, if you really believe that Jesus is the only way, then how can you not share with somebody else? You should be screaming at the top of your lungs because there's power in the gospel, the power to mend lives, the power to restore relationships, to heal those who are sick, to make a difference in somebody's life. Now I recognize that we can't go out and just be obnoxious to people in our workplace. I get that. But when you have the opportunity, share. When somebody asks you a question, share. Live your life in such a way that people are going to ask you questions. Why are you different? Take every opportunity. And I also understand that that beating people over the head with a Bible is not effective either. But the truth is that's not good news, right? If you just tell everybody how, how they're wrong, you're never sharing with how God can make them right. There's a difference. And this gospel is available to everyone who believes. It's not just for any one of us. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. We shouldn't be concerned what people will think. 
because our concern for people who are lost should overwhelm and overshadow any other weirdness that we feel inside of us. I want you to know that I'm preaching to myself this morning as well because I recognize and struggle with the very same things that you all do as well. Because I was made a pastor doesn't mean that that all of a sudden all that goes away. We all struggle with it, but we have to choose to be obedient to the gospel, to be his bondservant instead of being worried about how we might feel. Because the truth is somebody's eternity may depend on it. Somebody's eternity is at stake. And then we'll end here today in verse 17. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Like I said, the message of the gospel is that sinners can be made right with God. Such an amazing and powerful thing. And it tells the story of how the righteous, of God, how a righteous God justifies sinful people. And this, this, uh, Turn a phrase here, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith is an interesting one. But the reality is, is that we see that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Basically, in other words, is like this. When we believe in the death and resurrection and burial of Jesus Christ's resurrection, we see that God's righteousness is actually revealed in that very act. Because we see punished, sin punished in Jesus, that's the requirement of a righteous and just God. But then we see his righteousness be made available, salvation available to all believers. We see his righteousness revealed in faith in that as well. In his death and resurrection, we see that a just God is able to forgive sinners yet remain holy. So we see that from faith, In that very act, his righteousness is revealed. But then it says, for faith. Other uh, ways you can translate it are as by faith. So it's revealed from faith, by faith, which means that this, this righteousness that we receive can only be received by faith. You can never live your life in such a way that it would meet the righteous requirements of a just and perfect God. No matter how perfect you lived your life, you can never meet that requirement. So for faith, or by faith, we receive that. And this is because His righteousness is revealed in us for faith. We are made righteous by believing in Him. And then He finally ends this verse by saying, the righteous shall live by faith. This is actually a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. And it just makes a statement that our righteousness is a result of faith and faith alone. The righteous live by faith, which means the unrighteous don't. And that's the only two options. You can receive righteousness by faith, or if you attempt to do it on your own, you'll never make it. So church, I want to challenge you this morning. Let's be a people who aren't ashamed of the gospel. Let's be a people who take opportunity to to share with others. Joseph, do you think um, uh, your wife would have a problem, Kathy would have a problem if I shared her dream? You don't think so? So Kathy had a dream the other night. Uh, Not last night, night before night last, right? Uh, Friday night. And uh, 
God was speaking to her, and she says it was a weird dream. It was very odd. But one of the things that she took away from it is that um, God is going to start building this church when we start going out into the streets and winning souls. And she said it wasn't even necessarily, you know, winning, getting people saved to bring them back here. Even if we get people saved and they go somewhere else, God will start honoring that and building our church. And that starts with each and every one of us. It's not uh, part of that. It's going to be corporately. We're going to have to start doing things to make a better impact and reaching people around us. But it doesn't just stop there. The truth is we all have a personal responsibility to, to share the gospel with others. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's not be afraid to share what God has done in your life. If nothing else, just share what God's done in your life, and you'll have opportunities to share what's different. I know each and every one of you have had miracles and amazing things take place in your life because God has touched you. Don't be ashamed of that. Share it with people. Tell people about it so they have the opportunity to receive it as well. And I think that as we, and I believe that as we begin to honor God and share the gospel, we're going to see a difference here as well. And that is not so we can say that we're a great big church because that doesn't mean anything. But what it does mean is our sphere of influence increases, our resources increases, and as a result, we can continue going out into the, to the highways and the byways and making an impact for the kingdom of heaven in this city. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel. Let's share it at every opportunity it is. And I get that it's hard, I get that it's tough, but let's do it anyway. Somebody's eternity depends on it. And then finally, let's be a people who live our lives from faith that out of our trust in him, everything would flow out of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads.